Hey folks, welcome back. My name is Andy, and today I'm excited to talk history with author and historian Katie Morales-Shannon. Her book, Antoine of Oak Alley, highlights the story of the birth of pecan grafting and the complex relationships which surrounded this process between slave owners and the enslaved. We talk about the complex power relationships around the plantation and how plantation communities existed as microcosms of the world surrounding them. Katie received her bachelor's in English and master's in history from Louisiana State University. She has been a professional historian for over 15 years and has dedicated her career to uncovering the stories of the enslaved on plantations lining Louisiana's River Road. Her work includes crucial early research for Whitney Plantation, an exhibit at Laura Plantation entitled From the Big House to the Quarters, Slavery on Laura Plantation, and a searchable online database of over 400 individuals enslaved on Evergreen Plantation. To go check out Katie's work, see the links included in the show notes. Now, let's get into it. Katie, thanks so much for coming on. Tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, the book that we're, we're about to talk about. Well, my name is Katie Morlos Shannon. I've been a historian for 20 years now. I received uh, my master's in history from Louisiana State University many moons ago, and I specialized in enslaved communities along the River Road in along the Mississippi River in Louisiana. And I've worked for several different plantations over the years, designed exhibits there. And my book is Antoine of Oak Alley. It's about the um, enslaved gardener at Oak Alley Plantation, who was the first to propagate the pecan, which led to the commercial production of the pecan. Yeah. So we just recently released an episode on, uh, as, as I've been pronouncing a pecan, it depends, I guess, where you're from, based on who I've <laughs> talked to, uh, what the correct way to pronounce it is. But I came across the story of Antoine, which I'd heard about, kind of like uh, somebody had mentioned it to me. And I was like, yeah, I got to look into that kind of thing. And I never really did. And uh, as, as we were putting together that episode, I started digging into it a little bit. I found your book. And it was really interesting because... You've got a lot of information in there. And despite the internet having access to everything, if you try Googling about Antoine, unless it's from you, I always find some of the, the details are different mm -hmm. uh, about what his father did, who he was exactly, why he was qualified to, to, make this, to do this grafting. Uh, it, it, there doesn't seem to be a, a very cohesive narrative. So it's, I think, been a lot of hearsay until you kind of put a really concrete basis for people to kind of point to moving into the future. Now, one of the things I really enjoyed about your book is that it's not just uh, here's the facts about Antoine's life. It's very uh, emotional and it really kind of like you, you give it this really interesting narrative about the like evolution of his life based on those historical documents that you've kind of discovered or, you know, whatever found were given interactions you've had and so on. So could you talk a little bit about this from, I guess, more of a writer's perspective before we even get into the story itself about like, how do you wrestle with the, here's some factual data, and then let me put this into a narrative that is engaging and interesting? Sure. So as a historian, everything that I present has to be based in fact. It all has to be factual, all my citations, all the data, and everything I say is going to be supported by a primary document. But I believe that the best history is told through storytelling, that it's through the power of story that people are really moved and that um, history comes alive and that it becomes very real for people. I'm 
far more interested in uh, the lives of everyday people and the emotions they felt and what what they lived and and things having to do that in a very personal way with people as opposed to movements or um, you know big abstract things. So I want to make it real and. In that way, I, I saw his life unfold as a story. And I really felt that people had to get to know him as a person. And unfortunately, for the lives of most enslaved individuals, they are presented as not being able to be told in a really full way because of a lack of facts. Now, that can sometimes be true that the archives does not necessarily hold as much for an enslaved person as it might for someone who enslaved them. But when done correctly, you can find enough to create a biography about certain individuals, as I've done with Antoine, but you have to be really meticulous and and dig and you have to be willing to, to put in that work. And then to be able to see things through the eyes of uh, put yourself in that place and time and try to see through the eyes of the people who lived there while at the same time being very true to the historical documents, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. One of the things I really appreciated about this book in particular is that uh, you go through this like narrative evolution like where you're talking about like you spend a lot of time talking about like the slave owners because they were so influential on how people that were enslaved lived. And you spend a lot of time talking about like kind of almost like their moral compass as they existed as slave owners. And what I really appreciated about it is that you actually spent the time to try to actually engage with it in an uncomfortable way to talk about like this idea of like good and bad. Like we understand objectively like slavery is bad. Like no one is disagreeing about that. Probably that's listening to this. But how people felt about it and how they engaged with it when it was still an active practice was really nuanced and difficult because it's not as, I mean, you, at one point in the book, you talk about after the civil war and how things basically didn't functionally change. And in some ways they became even more beneficial for certain former slave owners, because now they weren't really liable for sick, elderly, enslaved people. So in some ways things even got worse temporarily at least. And like, it, it points to like this really complicated relationship of how slave owners and the enslaved in some ways relied on one another in a way that I think we don't spend a lot of time today in history really like grappling with or even even like more of like uh, and like high school education and younger like being like, yes, this is a bad thing, but it's really complicated to understand why it's so hard to kind of detangle when you say like, okay, this was a good slave owner. Um, that's a highly subjective thing to say, but also like if they weren't there, what would have happened to some of those folks? You talk about, and I'm going to pronounce this name wrong, and I'm sorry, uh, Sothenin Roman. How did I do on that? Sostan Roma. Okay, okay, so I was way off. Uh, (laughs) uh, And they challenged publicly their brother's decision to auction off the family's enslaved population because they were worried about how that would change those relationships on the plantation. And like, were they doing it for good reasons? questionable, but it does point to like this really complicated relationship that exists in these landscapes. I'm so glad that you point that out. That is a question that's never been asked before and that I really thought was insightful. So Sostan Roman kind of embodies the complexity of 
the relationship between the enslaved and, and slaver in that you see what some people would label as benevolence, but also brutality all in one person. So we have this man who in the early days of the plantation, the Roman plantation, people were just trying to survive. That goes for the white people who owned the place as well as the enslaved people there. So they worked together somewhat. It was never an equitable kind of relationship, but they worked together. There were fewer slaves on the plantation. So they were very much interconnected, if that makes sense. It was never an equal society, but it was integrated. So he would have grown up with and known these particular enslaved individuals very intimately. They were the main house servants, the woman who, like his nanny, who raised him. These were people who were very intimately, closely connected to the family. So he felt some kind of connection with them and did not want to see their family separated. At the same time, so Stan Roman had relationships with free women of color in New Orleans and fathered children with them, uh, whom he never acknowledged publicly and did not provide for. He also, um, I have newspaper ads in which he was advertising for the capture of runaway slaves whom he had branded with a cattle iron, his initials on their forehead for running away. So that's really horrific, brutal violence. And I also have a court case in which an enslaved individual whom he owned on his plantation later in life said, I was actually born a free man uh, of color up in the north. I was sold down south by slave traders who captured me and I'm not supposed to be enslaved. And so, so Stan Roman was illegally enslaving him. So this was a man who engaged in great brutality but could also see enslaved people somewhat as individuals if they were very close to him. There's no easy way to define this kind of relationship. Yeah, it it's really interesting. You you have like a, a lot of these like little anecdotes in the book about I can't remember which it was in the same family who it was as a child talking to one of the enslaved folks and he makes this comment about I can't wait to grow up so that I can whip my slaves. And it's like this really jarring moment of like how how a child like I, I mean we both have little kids so sometimes they do tend to have this really like in, they're they're not fully capable of understanding the depth of what they're saying but also it's just like the normalization of that kind of language and violence uh, also is jarring uh, and it speaks to that like strange relationship where a child would love that person that takes care of them every day but also treat them more as an object that they love instead of a person that they love. And and it's and then to kind of fast forward, I know I'm meandering a little bit through the book, but at one point you talk about some of the former enslaved talking about how it was better for them before they had been freed. There's one that runs um I think it was the the Democratic ticket even in Louisiana talking about like how good things used to be and now they're not kind of thing. And it's just like speaks to like that there's no clear easy narrative not to say that there's no right or wrong answer on slavery like obviously there right. is but that it's it's complicated like you know i think about like politics today and like how we still see those same kind of like well you know you have these and 
cultural anomalies like Kanye West supporting Donald Trump, where it's like, how can you do this if you've had all these lived experiences, blah, blah, blah. And it points to the fact that like they're, these things are complicated. They're, they're individualized, and we tend to try to paint in broad strokes. And, and you did a really good job of like bringing that out. People forget that people of the past were individuals. We want to group them. We want to define them. But in fact, they were individuals, just like you were pointing out, people that we know. And obviously, slavery was horrific. But I think we also don't understand there were physical uh, physical violence. There was psychological violence. There were a lot of complexities. And at the end of the day, there were also people who just wanted to be fed. And freedom, they were struggling with that. And th But then you'll also find people who were former soldiers who fought for freedom who would say, I would do anything to be free. I would I would starve to be free. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, when it comes down to material conditions, you know, like you said, being able to feed yourself and feel safe in terms of like having a roof over your head and knowing that a meal was coming, even if you, you're eating today and you know tomorrow, no matter what I will eat, that especially when you have a family to take care of, that can very much reprioritize things like your sense of what's what's important. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. Now, how did you stumble across this particular story? Well, it goes back 20 years to when I was researching my master's thesis when I was at LSU. And my, I was working on uh, a thesis about Creole women in Louisiana. And so I was looking at different Creole family papers in various archives. And I went to Tulane University's special collections. And I was going through the Romanov family papers. And I first encountered Antoine there in the uh, slave inventory list. And it, it says Gardner. And I also had just read something about a slave who had belonged to the Roman family who had been involved with pecan grafting. So I knew about him, but it wasn't until I was working at Laura Plantation and we were studying the enslaved men who ran off from the plantations to join the Union Army. And Louisiana had black soldiers before any other place. You often hear about like glory in Massachusetts, right? That's what comes to mind. But here in Louisiana, we were actually the first to have black soldiers fight for freedom. And they were free men of color in New Orleans and then slaves who ran away from the plantation. So I was doing a lot of in-depth research on that. And I came across a man, a Union soldier from Vashry, Louisiana, and looking over his pension file, because once these men who had 
fought in the Civil War became elderly in the 1890s, the, they could apply to the federal government for a pension for their service. But they had to prove their identities because they didn't have a driver's license or a birth certificate or photographs because they had been formerly enslaved. Pension agents from the government had to come to where they lived and interview their family and their friends and their neighbors. So it was a wealth of information. And in reading over one, I realized that this was Antoine's son. All of a sudden, things clicked for me. Like, okay, if this is his son, then this must have been where, uh, you know, his his family and it, a whole network of interconnected emerged. And then I could suddenly see unfolding how a biography could be written in a way that I had not before. Well, that's interesting. So as you get to the end of the book, you don't talk too much about um, how Antoine's final years looked like. And obviously, that's because you don't have documentation. I'm curious if you have any like subjective thoughts or interesting, like I couldn't prove it, but I was getting this kind of like vibe that I can't quite piece together, but maybe someday I can. I do. Um, I find it curious that his grandson, the son of a Union soldier, attended straight college in New Orleans. And he only did it for about a year or two. But it seemed really interesting to me that the son of a sugarcane laborer, because Antoine's son, he did not have an elevated position on the plantation. He was uh, a plowman. He plowed the fields. He, he harvested the cane. He sent his son to straight college in New Orleans, and, and that cost money, and that required resources. And so... At the time, Hubert Bonzano, who owned the plantation, had taken the Centennial Pecan, which was what he called Antoine's Pecan, and sent it to the exposition, the Centennial Exposition in, in Philadelphia. And I do wonder if some kind of acknowledgement of Antoine's contribution, he may have financed for a brief period of time to have uh, his, his grandson. That is one thing I do wonder. I do think Antoine um, died in obscurity. I think he died in poverty. I think that's a pretty safe thing to say. Yeah. Were there any uh, new threads? I, I do a lot of research and you, you find these things you're like, huh, that's really interesting too. I'm going to come back to that later and then you forget about it or, you know, you're like, I don't feel like looking at it, looking it up anymore because I, you know, I've moved on to other things. Was there anything that you were like, hey, there's some really interesting points that someone needs to spend some time kind of unpacking and digging into? Well, um, there were several in particular, one having to do with Detterville, whom I mentioned in the book, who was possibly would be considered the head house servant and enslaved servant in the Roman family house. And kind of his continued story, his children's lives and their story, they, they moved to New Orleans. But also one of the Romans, uh, the man who enslaved Antoine, Jacques Telesfort Roman, his nephew was a Confederate officer during the Civil War, and he had a, a relationship with an enslaved woman that resulted in um, a son. And that son was named Gustav Roma, and he went on to move to New Orleans, and he actually served in the Spanish-American War in what was known as the Immunes. They were the um, men of color that 
the United States Army sent to Cuba thinking they would be immune to malaria and yellow fever and those kinds of diseases because they were black, <laughs> Warland, which in yeah. course was not the case. So his life is really fascinating. And, you know, here he is, the son of this Confederate officer and um, growing up in New Orleans. And his father was this big judge, but, you know, never, of course, acknowledged. No, oh, that's interesting. Do you find yourself more um, interested in the pecan as a food now? You know, I do. Um, my t- <laughs> New respects. <laughs> I, I do. And we have we have two acres of land that we got like post-COVID. We have chickens and goats and things. And we have fenced off part of the pasture for like an orchard and garden area. Because if we didn't, the goats would eat it all. So we're getting, we're going to get hopefully a you know a variety of um, fruit trees and then hopefully some pecans in honor of Antoine. But my kids can eat pecans just raw, like by the handfuls. They love them. Though I have to admit, I am not a praline fan. And that's kind of heresy here in New Orleans. Yes. You know, um, but I, I prefer it in other ways. Yeah, I, I was just in Savannah maybe a month ago, and I ate so many; it was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't we don't have pralines around here, so it's not very common sure. to at least not like fresh. So how how do you go through Savannah and not have like a dozen or two? <laughs> I, I'm curious if you're able to trace Antoine's lineage to today, and uh, if so, if you if you had the opportunity to talk to any of that family, I have. That is one of my specialties is being able to make those kind of connections, which I know can be per- extremely hard for the descendants of formerly enslaved people to do. And I, I do do that kind of work, helping them navigate that. But yeah, I did locate several great grandchildren. And when the book came out, I, I sent them signed copies. And one of them gave me a picture of his great, great grandson. So that's been incredibly rewarding. And he has many ancestors or descendants, rather, because his grandson had like between seven and 10 children. It was some died. So but it was a large family. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That That's like one of those things you see on TV. Remember, that was like a thing for a while where they would like do the, the DNA family yes. lineage things on TV. That's like one of the ones you would expect to get. Where it's like, oh, this famous person is your great-great-grandfather, something like that. But yeah, Antoine's story is so interesting. I'm I'm so curious to know how many more stories are out there like this about native crops, native, or even just like propagation, uh, any, any of those things that we tend to like assign to some person that maybe was an enslaved person whose history has been since mostly erased. Well, I suspect there are many, unfortunately, as you point out, a lot of them would go undocumented. We are just fortunate to know Antoine's, uh, that, that Antoine did this because of a couple attributions and a slave inventory that was made during the probate of his enslavers' uh, possessions after his death. And then one mention that was made to um, a Department of Agriculture employee when he was tracing different species. So had it not been for those things, one would have faded completely. But I do know of two stories. So my expertise tends to be in, of course, South Louisiana crops and um, sugarcane in particular. This is one of those stories that's like pretty well known in, in Louisiana, but may not be really well known elsewhere, if that makes sense. <laughs> Norbert Rillia 
was a free man of color who was born here in New Orleans and was educated in France. And during the height of his era, he had to deal with a lot of the sugarcane planters in Louisiana were seeing this boom in the sugar industry. But the problem was the fuel necessary to burn and and for the mills to refine the sugar. And steamboats were using a lot of fuel and to, to power up and down the river. So they needed something that would, would address this. So Nor- Norbert Rilje in 1843 patented what was called the multiple effect evaporator. It produced high quality and high quantity sugar, but used about 75% less fuel. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah. that's one of the big ones that immediately comes to mind. And then there was another man named Leonard Julian, and he lived in Ascension Parish. And in the 1960s, he created the first mechanical sugarcane harvester, which could plant about 12 acres in a day with five men, which I think took about 16 men and a lot more went into it at the time. So so he helped cut back on that labor. But unfortunately, Someone got the machine and kind of fiddled with it and then patented it for themselves. So he never really got the credit that he was due. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm not familiar with either of those, but that's really interesting. So I think for folks that are listening to this, I think there's a lot of people that are very into history. If somebody wanted to try to trace down like one of these stories, what's that process kind of look like? Well, Part of it is a deep familiarity with the community. So I specialize in the New Orleans area, particularly St. James and St. John the Baptist parishes. So I've kind of immersed myself in those those places to the point where the people who live there are very familiar to me. So I see I see people who live in 1850 as if they were my friends and neighbors right now. I know that's weird, but I'm very, very intimately acquainted with dead people. So, but for someone who is not and would like to do more of this, I would say starting with going, making trips to different archives and looking into family papers that might sound of interest to you. They have finding aids that archives can provide where it kind of summarizes what are in these collections. And they typically consist of letters and diaries and local histories and genealogies. And it can be fascinating when you go through them, what you might find. And also local history books that are no longer uh, being published, but that might be in your library or your your main branch library has some some great stories that are probably not being told today, but that were known. And and a lot of times, as you said, some of this is based in legend or kind of um, embroidered or maybe not a hundred percent correct. But then, as you investigate and find more primary sources you can kind of find the kernel of truth. There's usually a kernel of truth in it, and, and you're able to trace that. Yeah, so archive, I think there's a lot of archives that have been, at least in the last five years, I've noticed uh, digitizing extensively. And that's actually, I think, for folks that are new to research but want to get into it, they find this really fascinating. Helping out, they all, those places always need volunteers to go through that archival process. That can be like a really good way to kind of get your your feet wet and see if you actually like it or like the idea of it. Because as you know, like 
sometimes you can spend a long time digging before you find something that's worthwhile. And you have to find out if if you like the novelty of it or if you actually like the process of it. Because if you don't like the process of it, it's going to get tedious very quickly. Yeah. And I find when you're looking at family collections, that have been donated to to universities, you get more bang for your buck quicker, if that makes sense. They're <laughs> more of like stuff you'd find in your grandma's attic that might be fascinating as opposed to like going through uh, notarial records that are bills of sale and governmental records and things like that that are a little bit harder to navigate at first. Yeah, absolutely. To get back to Antoine, I just, I'm curious, did you know that, I didn't write down the name, but there's uh, somebody who recently, within the last five years or so, I believe, planted some centennials back on Oak Alley Plantation? I did not know that. I knew that they were, re- the last time I was there, they which was around, I think it was 2020, because I was writing Antoine during the lockdown, which was a little bit challenging. But I knew that they were in the process of redoing the garden there. Yeah, I guess there was still some scion in um, one of the U.S. uh, repositories, and somebody grafted it, it took, and they planted some new grafts back. I I don't think it's in the same spot as those trees originally were, um, because, I, I mean, I'm not familiar with the site, you probably are, but I'm sure there was a good reason why they didn't do that. But from what I read that they were they were donated to, to whatever historical foundation mm-hmm. manages it today. As far as I'm aware, from what I read that they were planted and I don't know if there's if they've continued to survive, I assume they did. But uh yeah, I thought that was really a really nice way to really honor that heritage. That's wonderful. That's very exciting. Yeah, I'll have to send you the link after this. So what what are you working on right now or what's um kind of cooking for you? Well I just finished a manuscript and submitted it to LSU Press about enslaved women who were whose fathers were white men and whose mothers were enslaved. And unlike the vast majority of these relationships, these were consensual. These were people who wanted to be together but could not because of the legal system in Louisiana forbidding interracial marriage or forbidding marriage between enslaved and free people. But after the Civil War, they married and legalized their unions and acknowledged their children. And then these women went on to have children with white men. And it became a question of how do they identify and and a whole uh, exploration of identity. They were met with extreme hatred and and um, this barrage of hostility from the vital records department head of New Orleans who made it his personal crusade to to protect the purity of the white race by weeding out these people who were ex- such extreme threats in his eyes so the New Orleans vital de- records department, would deny marriage records to people who were suspected of having, quote, mixed racial ancestry. This became a serious, serious issue to the point where people, there there were just thousands of people who were not being allowed to receive birth or death certificates. So it, it explores that. And I, I think that it still has some pretty relevant information that that resonates today, unfortunately. Yeah, that I mean, it it makes sense. Like, obviously, like 
people's opinions about slavery didn't change because of the Civil War. So it could, like, it's not surprising that those things were happening. Yeah, that's that's going to be really interesting. I look forward to it. Do you guys uh, kind of have an idea when it's coming out? Probably next winter? Probably. We'll see. Yeah. But awesome. I'm excited about that. Yeah. And uh, for folks that want to kind of keep an eye on the research you're doing, or uh, I know you've got another book that you've released as well, where can they find you and your work? Well, I'm, on Inst- I'm most active on Instagram at Katie, K-A-T-Y dot Morlas, M-O-R-L-A-S dot Shannon. And I do have a website, www.katiemshannon.com. And I'm Katie with a Y. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, Katie, this has been really interesting. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that book coming out. Thank you so much. It was so wonderful to talk with you. You had some really insightful questions. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.